A reading from the book of First Peter. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. morning. For those who are visiting, my name is Paul. I'm the senior pastor here. What a joy to worship with you and celebrate with you today on this special September 10th dedication and celebration Sunday. Um, The title of our message today is A Lasting Community, and before we dive into God's Word, would you bow your heads with me as I share a brief word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer, and in the oldest prayer of the church we pray, come Holy Spirit, come, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me begin by asking this question. Have you ever witnessed the power of community? I'm no arborist, but recently I came across some fascinating information about coastal redwoods. Has anyone here ever been out to Oregon or California to see the redwoods before? Well, here's some of the information I discovered. Coastal redwoods are the tallest trees on the planet. They are. Reaching as high as 380 feet, not including the root system, and growing as wide as 30 feet in diameter, coastal redwoods are massive. Additionally, coastal redwoods are old, and I mean really old. According to experts, some redwoods have lived to be over 2,200 years of age making them some of the oldest living organisms on the planet. Furthermore, coastal redwoods are beautiful. They're stunning. As an evergreen, their foliage remains green and functional season after season after season. And they have this soft, dense, yet bright red-brown bark. And last but not least, tindled or straight. I mean laser beam straight, seeming to defy gravity. Now this is Notable for a novice like me because you would think as they grow taller and with all that girth and that canopy, they would collapse, but that doesn't seem to happen. As they grow older, they actually seem to grow straighter. 
Friends, here's a picture of a forest of coastal redwoods. They are massive. And yes, if you look closely, that is a person at the bottom of the picture. So you may ask, how do these trees grow to be so large and aged and beautiful? Well, here's the, here's the answer, friends. Coastal redwoods grow to be large and aged and beautiful through the power of connection. Redwoods grow to be large and aged and beautiful through the power of connection. Listen to this. The roots of coastal redwoods only go down some 10 to 13 feet. That's it. 10 to 13 feet. That's not much. However, the roots of coastal redwoods do something spectacular. They grow wide, and I mean incredibly wide, as much as 100 feet wide, in order to do what? To interlock with the roots of other redwoods. Just imagine it. 100 feet of redwood roots interlocking with the extended roots of other redwoods. Thus, coastal redwoods form a network or a system or a community of connection under the surface of the earth. And it's this connection or community, experts tell us, that ensures that when storms hit or high winds hit or terrible floods hit, redwoods are able to stand the test of time. Talk about a picture of stability and strength, wouldn't you agree? Oh, the power of connection, Ari. Oh, the power of community. Not just in the natural world, but in our world as well. Friends, have you ever witnessed the power of community? Today, as we celebrate the fall, uh, fall launch here at One Fellowship and the dedication of this incredible building, we're going to talk about God's vision for community. We're going to be talking about a lasting, life-changing, living gospel community in which I believe you are called to be a part. And through this week's sermon and through the next two weeks of sermons, we hope you catch the heartbeat of God in the specific vision God has placed on our church's heart and are able to leave this place thinking, I think I've found my home. I found my home. So with that introduction, the big idea we're going to see this morning from 1 Peter 2 is this. In Jesus, God's vision for you is rooted in God's vision for us. In Jesus, God's vision for you is rooted in God's vision for us. And we're going to unpack this through three points. Point one, in Jesus, we find the cornerstone. Point two, on Jesus, God's building a home. And point three, through Jesus, God's building a lasting community. So let's get started. Point one, in Jesus, we find the cornerstone. As you come to him, beginning in verse four, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God, precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual home or a house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture, it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, 
that you may do what? Declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So if you call One Fellowship home, you know we always say this. There's no text without a context, right? So, so what's the context of our passage today? Well, here it is. Darkness is real. Darkness is real. Specifically, our book, 1 Peter, begins with chapter 1, verse 1, with these words. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In other words, today's passage is part of a letter uh, written by Peter to early Christians in what is now known as Turkey to encourage them. Well, why, why would they need encouragement? Well, they were going through some tough times. Uh, you see, in that day, not only did Jewish people uh, resent Christians for their messianic belief in Jesus, uh, but also everyone seemed to live under the heavy fist of Roman rule. Hence, it's, it's not a stretch to say that uh, Christians face a form of double um, persecution and hostility. So Peter's climate in which he was writing these words was one of darkness. Now, before moving forward, I just want to stop and say this acknowledgement, this darkness, this little backdrop actually uh, encourages me. It brings me comfort. That's odd, pastor. Why would you say that? Well, here's why. It names what is. Darkness is real, and we all know it. Turn on the news, and it's a ticker of bad news, right? There's an accident here. There's an assault there. Wars rage on. And moreover, the darkness is not just out there. It's right here, right? Right here. It's found in our own stories. We see it in our families of origin. That fight we just had, that shame we just endured, that struggle that just returned. Darkness is real. And if we're honest, we know it. And yet we often struggle to process it. Well, Peter names it. That's the context of our text. And this acknowledgement, uh, to me, actually triggers good news. Why? Because God's not blind to the darkness. Specifically, Updike's God's not blind to our darkness. In fact, it's the very reason Scripture says Jesus came. John chapter 1, in him, Jesus was life and the life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, light in the darkness, full of grace and truth. Who or what is God's solution to darkness? Jesus. And this reality is found right in the heart of our passage. But before diving back into our text, let me share another story. A few years ago, a friend of mine, a friend of ours, I won't name his name, decided to build a house. And he didn't just want to build any house. He wanted to build a hurricane-proof house in Charleston. And so he and his wife, they researched plans. And together, they decided to build a house out of what? poured concrete, nearly all of it, multiple stories. And so they gathered plans, they researched cost, 
They researched materials and finally they hired a specialty builder. All was going great in the build until what? It wasn't. You see, one day their builder, their specialty builder up and quit and left and actually fled the state. Job undone. And it was awful. Still, our friends are resilient, so they pressed on. They said, we're going to still build this house. And effectively, they became their own contractors. They hired subs. They managed the work. They picked materials. And finally, that day arrived when their giant support beam made of steel came on a semi-truck. This beam, mind you, needed to be perfect as well as strong as its job was to hold the weight of the entire house. One fellowship, do you see where I'm going with this? Right away, to our friends, the beam looked too small. It didn't pass the eyeball test. And so they measured it. They measured it again. They made some calculations. They measured it a third time. They spoke to some wise counsel. And sure enough, they discovered that the beam had been built too small. Thus, it'd be too weak to hold the weight of their house. Thankfully, our friends caught the mistake and ordered a new beam, for if they hadn't, it would have been disastrous. You see, they needed a structure that could hold the weight of their whole home. Similarly, we too need something that can hold the weight of our whole lives. Returning to our passage, this gets to the heart of what Peter tells us. Quoting Isaiah 28, he writes, See, I lay a stone on Zion, a chosen and precious stone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Do you see it, friends? Don't miss it. In our passage, Jesus is first inviting us to reflect on the very support beam, foundation, or root systems of our lives. Stone, friends, JW, what are you building your life upon? Is it temporal? Is it eternal? Is it weak? Is it strong? Is it something that will fade and crack and erode over time? Or will it stand the test of time? Peter asks, what's your cornerstone? And for Peter's original audience, hearing this word cornerstone would have meant so much to them. It would have. Here's why. It held significant messianic significance. In fact, that's what we read in the book of Psalms, in the book of Isaiah. Additionally, in the book of Daniel, there's this mention of a stone that will come and somehow liberate and be the foundation for the people of Israel as they suffer Babylonian persecution. In Daniel chapter 2, a stone we read, not cut from the hands of men, was promised to come and dash the darkness and dash the evil kingdoms of our world and do what established God's just and merciful reign on the earth. It would deal with all the darkness and on it would be built a new kingdom, hope. Thus, for Peter to say that Jesus is the living stone, the very cornerstone of the Old Testament that was prophesied. And then our passage is, is littered. It's full of Old Testament references. This would have blown the minds of the early believers. Frankly, I think it would have left some of them in tears to read this. 
He, Jesus, friends, is the living stone, Peter says, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So point one, in Jesus, we find the cornerstone. Point two, on Jesus, God's building a home. All right, Daryl, you may say to me, all right, pastor, yes, Jesus is the Savior. He's the Messiah. We've heard all this before. In, whom all, in him, all hope is found. We get it. Yes, friends, but there's more. There's so much more to this story and your story. Returning to our passage, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God, precious to him, you also, as living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In one declaration, here, Peter takes the lid off of the ideology of where God will dwell in the world moving forward. Track with me. Track with me here. In the Old Testament, in the beginning of the Bible, we read in Genesis, God made man and woman in his image and walked with them in the garden. This is called the creation account. Next we read, he led his people through a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night in the wilderness. This is called the Exodus account. From there we read, God directed his people to build a tabernacle, a tent of meeting, and he met with them there in that place on special occasions through special people. And finally, he directed David and Solomon and other leaders to build what? A temple in which he would dwell with his presence, especially in the innermost chamber, this place called the most holy of holies. Thus, in the Old Testament, God dwelled with his people in particular places for particular purposes by way of particular people. Are you tracking with me? Now, returning to today's passage, Peter basically blows the lid off of this and says, now in us, now in you, now in the church here and everywhere and forever, God has chosen to dwell. In other words, Melissa, as God walked in the garden, he now walks with you. Andrew, as God led the people of Israel through the desert, God now leads you. Brooke, as God dwelt in the tabernacle, he now dwells in you. And as God gave hope through the temple in Jerusalem, church, God now dispenses hope through you. Church, you are now the dwelling place of the living God. Peter is telling us that we, as the people of God, using the plural form, you, I know we grew up reading the Bible in individual, uh, lens, with individual lenses, but he uses the plural form of you here again and again, and he says, you are now, guess what? You are now the temple. You are now the most holy of holies, and I will dwell in you. So, so is it a beautiful thing to make pilgrimages to historic sacred sites around the world? You ever done that? Is that a beautiful thing? It absolutely is. But here and elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told that the living, sacred dwelling place of God is no longer out there. It's right here. It's in you, and it's in me, and it's in us, the church. Point two on Jesus, God's building 
a home. And point three, through Jesus, God's building a lasting community. All right, as most of you know, I grew up in this small town in rural central Florida, right? I talk about this all the time. I think, I don't think anyone here has been there in this service, but uh, there's nothing there except orange groves and cattle ranches. Well, looking back at my childhood, as I was thinking about today's message, I, I thought about one of the toughest times that I walked through as a little munchkin. It was P.E. You guys remember physical education class, P.E.? Anyone else have a tough time at P.E. before? I know Drew did. Anyone else? Well, P.E. was tough for me as a kid. It really was because every day in those days, it was like a long time ago, Every day we'd play dodgeball, that was fun, uh, football or basketball with no supervision at all. I'm not kidding, no supervision at all. And guess what? I was a bit of an outsider. You see, my parents were not from the South, let alone Lake Wales, Florida. They were from Chicago. So I didn't fit in. Thus, I wasn't often chosen in my early years to be on a team. I was often left out. Furthermore, at Babson Park Elementary School, where our mascot was the Nats. That's serious. There were also a lot of migrant kids. Kids whose parents worked the orange groves or ranches, they would come and go, and many of them did not speak English. And guess what? They too were often left out. It was tough to not be chosen, to be left out. Has that ever happened in your life before? I don't share this story to be a downer, actually just the opposite. Imagine, if you will, if all of those kids who were never chosen were somehow picked for the best teams back in the day. Imagine how they, imagine how you would feel you would feel oh so special. Returning to our text, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Friends, do you see what Peter is saying? In Jesus, we're all chosen. We're all insiders. We're all called to be part of the family. And it's amazingly good news. Amen? Amen. And guess what? This was God's plan all along. Going back to the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, go from your land, your relatives, your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. In all, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In other words, from the very beginning of time, God always wanted to build a global, lasting community. Moreover, let's go all the way to the end of the Bible. What's the picture we're given in Revelation chapter 7? 
After this, I looked and, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Thus, upon Jesus, the cornerstone, the living stone, God is building a home that's going to be filled with people just like you and people who look nothing like you. Isn't that something to dream about? While we don't have time to unpack these titles that we read here, here's what I want us to know. You and I are called to be part of a historic, diverse, and dynamic, multilingual, multinational, and multi-generational community of faith that does what? Stands the test of time. You and I are called to be part of a historic, diverse, and dynamic, multilingual, multinational, and multi-generational community of faith that does what? Stands the test of time. Returning to our opening illustration. How wide are your roots meant to grow? Your roots are meant to grow wide enough to touch the edges of the globe and span throughout eternity. That's quite the image, right? That's quite the picture, right? Well, guess what? That's God's plan for you, and that's God's plan for me. So point three, through Jesus, God's building a lasting community. One last story. As relayed by scholar Karen Jibes, there was once a, a Spartan king boasting to a visiting monarch about the walls of Sparta. And yet, as the visiting king actually looked around, he, he saw no walled city. And he finally asked the Spartan king, where are the renowned walls of Sparta? The Spartan king, in response, stopped, smiled, and paused and then he pointed to his army and replied, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man, a brick. The church, living stones, every man, a brick. Every woman, a brick. Every student, a brick. Every child, a brick. Built upon Jesus. Friends, in Jesus, God's vision for you is rooted in God's vision for us as the church. In Jesus, we find the cornerstone. On Jesus, God's building a home. And through Jesus, God's building a lasting community. Where does God's hope dwell? The world is so thirsty and desperate for hope. Where does God's hope dwell? God's hope dwells right right in you and right in me and right in us. Let that expand your heart and your minds this morning. Let us pray. God, thank you for not only the gift of your son, but the gift of community, your community, the living stones known as the church. God, broaden our hearts and our imaginations this morning that we may rest upon you, grow upon you, and serve for you. For our good and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.